You're listening to the Nerd to Know Media Network. Join us at nerdtoknowmedia.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, it's now time for our main event. Take a trip back in time to the golden era of the wrestling world with your host, Chris Tetrold Blaine. Welcome to Once Upon a Turnbuckle. So welcome to a very, very special new episode of Once Upon a Turnbuckle. Uh, thank you wherever you're uh, tuning in, whether you're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, it, all the usual audio forms, or amongst those who are tuning in to the very first video version of Once Upon a Turnbuckle. Um, and I bring with me a very, very special guest. You know, th th This guy, any fans of the Golden Era Wrestling will know this guy he will need no introduction but i'll give him one anyway so whether you were a fan of the nwa uh world class mid-south wwf wcw you will have seen him on your screen uh he comes from a very famous wrestling family he's got a background that unfortunately i don't think there's one show that can cover it but i'll do my best so uh, welcome sam houston thank you for coming on Hey, thank you for having me, man. Uh, it's a, a great opportunity for me to get out there and reach out to my fans and stuff. And y'all are always in my heart. I just want you to know, y'all give me, I mean, give me the power <laughs> to keep moving forward. But uh, I, I just thank you for the opportunity, you know. No, no the, the honor's all mine, really. Thank you for coming on. And we'll kind of we'll delve into as much as we can of your your life and your career with the time okay. we've got um the, the 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 best place i always tend to go to with my guests first is back to the beginning obviously it's a good place to start i'm not going to break into song um so you obviously you you had wrestling in your blood you 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 were from yeah, a, I was a second wrestling generation. Family. yeah i was a second generation wrestler my dad was, uh, well, uh, first, I believe he started wrestling under the name Jake Smith, and then uh, Tiny Anderson, then Tiny Smith, and then ended up being Grizzly Smith after he was wrestling bears all over the place. Sure. Uh, my dad was almost seven foot taller. He was right at seven foot tall. And he weighed about 380 pounds most of his career. A lot of people remember him as Grizzly Smith and one half of the Kentuckians. Well, in uh, 1962, he met my mom in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, and uh, uh, they got together, and then they, they got married, and the next year I was born. Uh, I was two weeks old when I went to my first wrestling event, wow. and after I went to the first one, it just never stopped, you know? I was at one the other night, so it's <laughs> in your blood. Well, all my life, you know, growing up, when I was a young, young kid, before I started first grade in school, 
I went to 21 different regions. I lived in 21 different regions of the country. I might be in Florida this, this, you know, this two or three months and then out to Los Angeles and then back up to Portland, then back to Texas, over to the North, I mean, North Carolina. We were all over the place, Omaha, Nebraska. But I lived in 21 different regions of the country before I started first grade. So, but those were the territorial days. I don't know if England, I don't know if y'all over there have, have the different organizations, the different territorial we do now, yeah. I don't think. I mean, I'm I'm not a massively schooled in the 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 British as um the British setup back then, but I know yeah there were a couple of sort of big areas and that, but I I don't it certainly wasn't as prevalent as you had over there. I don't think. Right, right. Well, we had you know we had the territories here. Well, uh, and then uh, oh gosh, we moved to Louisiana in the seventies. Uh, uh, my dad went to work for Leroy McGurk. And uh, became sort of like matchmaker. Plus, he was also wrestling at the time, too. And he wrestled until 1976. Um, well, my mom and dad had divorced when I was about 12 or 13. And uh, I ended up living with my dad, being on the road with him. So from that time on, I, I've had no parental guidance whatsoever, really. Uh you know, it was a, a rock and roll lifestyle. You're living, you know, shoot, I'm riding down the road doing, doing, you know, 3,000 miles a week on a, in a vehicle, a junkyard dog, and and whichever, whoever needs rides here or there, you know, and I was part of the ring crew growing up and stuff like that. Well, uh, I was getting my weight up. I was in high school. I'd been on the wrestling team. I was undefeated. Um I was getting my weight up. Uh, a tornado hit our house in 1978. Right. And, uh, I mean, that was a, a traumatic experience. In 1979, my sister, my stepsister, uh, got, uh, was kidnapped and taken from us. Um, and now they're coming out with evidence saying that it's, there's a possibility she still may be living. If she is, wow. Jolene, if you're out there, if you're out there, I'm, I'm reaching my hand out to you. Just reach back. I'll, anything you, I can do to help you, I will be there. I love you, sis. Um, but that happened in 79. And then I had my tonsils taken out when I was 17 years old. And right. they messed up in the surgery. And they, pu they punctured the back of my windpipe and filled me up with that gas, the right. anesthesia gas. And it caused a massive heart attack and I flatlined for two wow. minutes. Um, they had to bleed the gas out of me. They got me back going. I got to tell you, I was mad when they brought me back because in that two minutes, I don't know where I went. I did have a tunnel experience. When I came to the light, everything around me was golden. I was content. I mean, it, was, yeah. it was like the color, brightness of yellow and the warmth and the joy, there was no pain. Everything was great. And then I heard this voice say, not yet, go back. Right. And they resuscitated me. And I was mad. But when they resuscitated me, I was in a coma for two weeks. And I spent two weeks in a coma with my, my parents and my sister. They never left the room. 
usually in intensive care, you're allowed to go in every two hours and see your family for 20 minutes over here. Uh, my family lived in the room with me because the, the hospital knew that they'd made a mistake. Yeah. Uh, the doctor come in and told him it didn't look good for me. And I remember my mom and my sister both crying. And then I, I saw my dad crying and praying and he was praying and he kept saying, fight, fight, fight. So that night I woke up and I looked at my mom and I said, they nicked my pharynx. And she said, you mean larynx? And I said, no, ma'am, they said pharynx in the uh, operating room. And I'd never heard that word before. I've heard of larynx, that's your voice box. Hmm. The pharynx is the back of your windpipe. Evidently, when they were sticking the tube down my throat for me to breathe through during the surgery, because what they do is they stick a tube down, then they put a balloon down there, and they air up the balloon, and then they snare the tonsils and scrape the adenoids. Mm -hmm. Well, when they stuck the tube down, they punctured a hole in the back of my windpipe. And then when they gave me the gas, it inflated me like a flat tire. Just, oh, I was huge. So they had to bleed all that gas out. I didn't eat food from April the 2nd to August 13th that year. Wow. I lost 102 pounds. Uh, anyway, I took my GED. I started training real hard, got my weight back up. I was, you know, still building the rings for Mid-South, all kinds of stuff. On the road, I was a mechanic. I, there's stories about me everywhere. They're all true. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so, uh, I, I mean, uh, growing up, it was nothing for one of the wrestlers to be broke down. And my dad dropping me and my high school buddy off to fix his car while he takes them off 100 miles down the road. The town, it's up to me to catch up with them. Good mm -hmm. thing I was a part mechanic. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, I got my weight back up and I went the traditional way. I, I, I went and I, uh, George Weingroff worked out in the ring with me and stretched me. And I mean, really wrestled, but I was a good amateur wrestler myself. Mm -hmm. And after two times, he told me, he said, man, you're ready. Wow. He knew I could handle myself. So I went to my dad and my dad told me, he said, son, he said, I've already lost you once. This business isn't for you. And that hurt me. He wasn't going to help me break in. So mm -hmm. Dusty Rhodes had come into the, uh, uh, the territory to work a shot in New Orleans. And my dad, uh, Grizzly Smith, is the one that gave Dusty Rhodes his big break. Dusty was getting out of the business in 1969. It's coming back from Minnesota, coming back to Austin, Texas, going to go into the plumbing business with his dad. Yeah. And uh, coming through, he was going to do his last job in uh, Dallas, Texas at the Sportatorium. And my dad felt him when he got in the ring, you know, felt the charisma and felt everything about him. And, you know, dad being the, I guess, leader or, or ring general that he was changed everything. And Dusty won that match. And, yeah. and uh, I mean, it, it, it uh, skyrocketed his career. The American dream part wasn't born until the early 70s. Right, so yeah. I guess kind of to return a favor, uh, I went to Dusty. And uh, I, I told him, I said, I don't want to be treated like other second generation wrestlers that are using their families' names. Mm -hmm. You know, and they were getting matches and privileges probably are, are, are they were, 
I guess more privileged. I didn't yeah. want that. No. You know, I wanted to earn my way up. So uh like when Jake first started, you know, he wrestled under Jake Smith for a while and as part of the Kentuckians with my mm-hmm. uncle Luke for a while. Um, but I didn't want that. I wanted, you know, to make it on my own. So so Dusty uh, changed my name to Michael Sam Houston. Really kind of neat because I was born in Tampa, Florida. My first match was September 13, 1983 in Tampa, Florida. So the birthplace of Michael Smith was also the birthplace of Sam Houston's professional uh, career. Awesome. That's yeah, cool. Was, uh, yeah, and then, you know, I had the privilege down there to, to work in Florida for, you know, just about three months straight. Mm. You know, six, seven days a week, you know, uh, wrestling on television, you know, maybe twice on Wednesday mornings, and you would got to drive five hours to Miami, Florida, mm. wrestle there, and then make it back. You know, it was – it was, a, it was a schedule, but see, back then the guys, it was different than it is today. After the matches, you know, you're getting in the car. I know you're probably doing it, but it did happen. You know, you get your six pack, you're driving down the road, yeah. you're discussing the night's event. And that's mm-hmm. a lot of the new guys. That's how you learn. You got to get with these old timers and know what's going on. Yeah. And, uh, Anyway, I, I was privileged in Florida to be able to run, uh, ride with Mike Davis, Mike Rotundo, Hector Guerrero, uh, a lot of Dusty, Barry Windham, a lot of these guys. And they were all playing, you know, pretty – because I was second generation. They started playing the ribs on me. Right. Hector, Hector Guerrero come up and he said, never be second best. And I never was. Right. <laughs> yeah, so I out-ribbed everybody down in Florida. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I had people like, oh, you know, bowing down and then please, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, and then I came, I was there three months and you notice over here, oh, no, it's over here, the uh, album Boxcar Willie, uh, Dusty had the original, I mean, the first annual Orlando Jamboree is going to be like December 18th and Boxcar Willie was the headliner. Yeah. I know Bob, Boxcar Williams does some amazing things, you know, record sales and stuff like that overseas as well as here in the States. Yeah. Um, but he wasn't in that, I guess, Confederate age country music at the time it was hot. Yeah. So at the concert, uh, I brought the band in and uh, uh, only, you know, 50 people paid to come see the event. Well, when I got met at the door with the band, Dusty handed me a bottle of wild turkey and, you know, it was on. So drinking, we had uh, trash cans full of beer and wild turkey. Oh, just, right. so I ended up dancing on the stage, playing a fiddle, cutting the security <laughs> rope, dancing with little old ladies. Yeah, wild turkey had my side that night. Wow. So I said, and I was standing on stage and Mike Davis said, he goes, Sammy Houston, what do you feel like? And I said, listen, my baby, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> and I started doing the best Dusty Rhodes impersonation that you ever heard. You know, about the 50 people there. And I said, I'm going to turn this in from the world's biggest catastrophe to the world's greatest party. Everybody going to dance. And I jumped on a speaker and started dancing on top of a speaker that was on top of the stage. <laughs> and I'm dancing again. I turned around to Mike Davis uh, and I said, what you got to see about it now, baby? And he said, 
he's right behind you. <laughs> I turned around and he was there. He said, you finish up tomorrow night. And I was oh. like, oh, <laughs> I walked away and he come back to me a few minutes later. He goes, no, baby. He goes, you're starting in the Carolinas after uh, starting at the beginning of the year. So he had already taken care of me, you know. But oh, when I was yeah, but when I got to the Carolinas, man, I was with old friends and people I'd grown up with, too. I learned to rodeo from Nelson Royal. I mean, I grew up around Johnny Weaver's, Wahoo McDaniel's, this one, that. Seeing them from here to here and territory to territory, and they were still in the business. And these were old friends and, you know, trusted confidants. These were my yeah. heroes. And they were giving me advice and everything, How you know. But as far as, like, uh, my wrestling ability – and things like that, you got to give that credit all the way to the guys like Danny Hodge, I mean, Mark Totten, Herb Calvert, Jim Shields, because those were the guys in the rest in the dressing room when I was uh, in school, twisting me up. What does this yeah. feel like? You're, 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 yeah. Oh, you know, Killer Carl Cox. Uh, yeah. My dad told me to go punch K Haystack's Calhoun in the stomach. <laughs> okay, that is seven foot tall and weighs three sixty. Let's say mm-hmm. Haystacks at Calhoun was about six five and weighed six forty. Mm-hmm. I'm nine ten years old. Who do you listen to? Haystack told <laughs> me if I punch him in the stomach, he was going to punch me in the nose. I looked down at my dad and he said, "Son, I told you to punch him in the stomach." You know. I got that nose shot too. <laughs> it's a bit of a lesson learned, then, isn't it? Really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I gosh, I, I've had like a, a life, uh, a life like no other. I mean, after I broke in the business and stuff, <clears throat> it was like we're running with Flair and Piper and this one and that one because I've been through all the organizations, so I'm just I just can't say this one or that one. I mean, I was on the road with Hogan and them for four and a half years. I was on the road with Dusty and them, you know. So I've been all in it. People ask me a lot about who's who's the greatest guy you worked with. You know, I can't tell you because I've stepped in the ring with all of them. Yeah. I wrestled, you know, the, from Baron Von Rasky to Ivan Koloff to Ric Flair to Kurt Henning, Mr. Perfect, for not, you know, to Hot Stuff Eddie Gilbert to, you know, uh, Crusher, Crusher Khrushchev, Barry Darso, yeah. uh, yeah. whose acts of, uh, well, no, he was Smash. Smash what? the Demolition, yeah, that's it. Yeah. yeah, but anyway, he saw me in Vegas uh, at the CACs the first time I went there, and he said, Sam. You know, we had many, many great matches. Our Starcade match, TBS match, or he blew his name. But uh, he came up to me uh, at the CACs, and he said, Sammy, he said, you know, all of the greatest matches in my career were with you. Wow. And I was like, wow, you know, what a feather to put in my, in my Absolutely. cap. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah and, and for, for me to hear things like that, uh, that's better than titles or, you yeah. know, and I don't care about all that stuff. And we're going to disqualify me. I'm going to go out there and have fun. <laughs> you know? was, there, was there anyone, I'm not sort of, you know, asking you to pick out who was the best or anything like that. Was there someone who, who you felt safest working with? You know, you knew you were going to have a good match. You knew they were going to look after you, make you look good maybe in the process. Was there anyone that stands out like that? 
I, I really didn't need that. <laughs> you know, I mean, I didn't because I, it, it, you can tell even matches with, with guys, and I'm not going to say any names, but you can see who can work and who can't, yeah. you know, or who's got it. So in the matches where you know that guy still doesn't really have it, I still did. Yeah. You know, and, and it looked at me as like getting the match over or what yeah. have you. Yeah. So it didn't matter to me whether, because I could protect myself. Um, I, I mean, Black Bar, oh, we beat the devil out of each other, me and him. <laughs> yeah. But even though we beat the snot out of each other, I knew everything was going to be all right, no matter yeah. what, you know. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, the state athletic commissions in two states tried to stop our matches. We, we're not allowed to wrestle in Maryland, over here, yeah. or in Pennsylvania. Because our matches were so brutal, bloody, this, that, and the other, just that they tried to physically stop us from fighting. And we were going at it, and we weren't going to let a whole bunch of suits and ties split us apart. So they went flying to, they were going to threaten to shut the show down in, in Maryland. And Dusty said, You go tell the people the show is shut down. <laughs> Yeah, they chickened out of that one real big. But, you know, but guys like Mr. Perfect, I, uh, guy, I've always, if I felt like that I, that I wasn't going to be safe, I, I I was just taking charge. That's just it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I did that a lot, but I did that a lot because I'm the guy that should have took charge. Mm. You know? You don't time. hit. You don't hear so much back from sort of this kind of era that we're talking about, but there were guys out there who were considered dangerous to work with. You hear about it more sort of more recently, probably in the last sort of 10 years or so, there's been a couple of standouts. Okay. I grew up in a business where men were men, you know, and you took it, you took it, you know, if you can't take it, you go back to flipping burgers at the, at the fast food joint. But if yeah. this is your passion, you know, then you're going to get through it. It's, it's, this ain't hurting nobody, you know, now like right there in the note. Yeah. Okay. But deliberation, that's, you know, that's that, that person's, you, you don't know if somebody's a cheap shot artist or not. Do you remember a fellow by the name of, of uh, Angelo Mosca? Yes. Big Nancy? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Wahoo McDaniels and him, they uh, Wahoo oh, had a thorough disliking for. I don't, I don't want to trash talk nobody, but mm. and Wahoo was right for doing it. But Mosca was a cheap shot artist in the uh, Canadian Football League. He'd hit the quarterback late and everything, and he was trying to break a leg, you know. Uh, from, and he was a bully. He liked to intimidate the young guys and stuff, but he. He ran up into me. <laughs> so I was not right now, did I? Huh? Oh, yeah. You know, I saw him four, four years later. He walked into the dressing room in Toronto. And he saw me. He went, uh, uh, uh. I'll be said, We're okay because of a rib I pulled. But it, if you'd like, I'll tell you the rib. Well, yeah. I had known Mosca uh, since I was about uh, – 14, 15 years old, because I used to be the 
ring crew from Mid-South. They used to get, you know, go set the ring up for Bill Watts' uh, territory and stuff. Anyway, uh, I had the spot show rings and the television rings. Well, Mosca came in, and he was just a big bully. You know, his name was Big Nasty and King Kong Mosca. But he was just a big bully in the dressing room. But I noticed then he only picked on people that weren't going to do nothing back. Mm-hmm. You know, he wouldn't mess with somebody who would stand up for themselves. Well, I get to the Carolinas. And, well, when I got to Florida, him and his son were leaving Florida and coming to the Carolinas. Three months later, I come to the Carolinas. And, you know, uh, for an underneath guy at the time, this is before Dusty got there and before things really opened up for us. Uh, But uh, I got to the Carolinas. And underneath talent, we were lucky to get two bookings a week, you know. And that's at a $50 a night minimum. And you got to buy your own gas and this, you know, so, you know, you're starving mm-hmm. and this is what you want to do. I was making more money setting up the ring. I was making $250 a night setting the ring up back for Bill Watts than I was working, you know, wrestling a match for Jim Crockett. Right. I was 250 a night to set up the ring and take it down. I was getting 50 a night to wrestle. Where's the logic? <laughs> You know, if I could have put it together, then I wouldn't have so much. Pain. <laughs> you know, I've been hitting the head with a lot of chairs. So anyway, one night, uh, Jordash jeans, blue jeans had just hit the scene over here. And they were like 60, 80 bucks a pair. And this one fellow, his name was Mark Fleming. Mm-hmm. And he was, you know, a mid-card guy, opening match, you know, and. Angelo Mosca knew how to shim the lock with a can. So he put uh, combination locks, padlocks on all of his belt loops. That's back for the. Now the guy's got to cut all of his belt loops, you know, and ruin his brand new pair of Jordache jeans. He's not making any money. That was a whole week's worth of pay right there. So then the next week, Barry Horowitz, well, he was he wrestled here as Barry Hart or Bret Hart at first. Yeah, and then right. yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. So at the time, there were two Bret Harts: the real Bret, the Hitman Hart, <laughs> and Barry Horowitz, who was Bret Hart. Yeah. So anyway, uh, he locked his big duffel bag, the the shoulder strap, uh, to a iron pipe. Right. Chained it up, locked it up. So he's got to cut the shoulder strap. Now with a huge duffel bag like this, you only got those two straps in the middle. So mm-hmm. now you're carrying your duffel bag. It's dragging in the front, dragging in the back. You don't have the shoulder strap holding each end. And ha, 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 he thought that was funny. Right. Well, for Christmas that year before, my mom had given me a pair of eel skin boots. And I come out of the ring one night. I get back in the dressing room. He put locks on all the pull straps on my boots. Well, that kind of ticked me off. Okay. And the funny thing was, I was riding back to Charlotte with his son. And we were, and, and his son was telling me, he goes, you know, nobody stands up to my dad. Nobody, nobody. And I was like, I, I will. He said, I believe in you, Sam. And actually, Ange Jr. loved everything I did. Right. So, so uh, 
Anyway, uh, that was uh, up in like some town called Marion, North Carolina or something uh, right up there on the North Carolina, Virginia line when that happened. So we were going to be in Tazewell, Virginia at a high school. And I got up there. I'm going to get even. I loaded myself down with shaving cream. Well, I wrestle my match and Mosca does his thing. Or him and his kid go on and have their match. So I shower and do my stuff. Now, I'm going to tell you from how Rufus Jones and Jimmy Valiant and Tommy Young told me. Because I was smart enough to be out of the dressing room with my wrestling gear up in the bleachers. And I'm listening to all the <laughs> explosions and everything. Oscar walks into the dressing room and he sees he had worn shower shoes. He sees his shower shoes covered in shaving cream. He's, ah, ha, 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 kid got me back. Man, that's good. That's good. Yeah. So he was happy yeah. that I showed a little spunk that I was getting yeah. back. Like, ah, ha, ha, ha. So he sits down, he's unlacing his boots and everything. And he, he was always talking about himself in the Canadian Football League. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like it's a dead issue here, dude. Uh, so he's unlacing his boots and he decides he wants a cigarette. So he grabs it, comes out. He does it again, nothing comes out. He hits it again, and a cigarette shoots out of the pack and sticks <laughs> to the locker. It all is. He had two packs of sha- uh, cigarettes, and I shave and cream both of them. <laughs> nice one. So now he's nicking out. He's having a nicotine. Now he's cussing and screaming. That son of a, I didn't mess with his personal ball. I didn't, you know, and now he's kicking and screaming and stuff. Yeah. Ah, he throws his cigarettes down. He sits there. He go, goes ahead and he's taking a shower. Yeah. Oh, he's taking a shower. They're still talking and everything, but nobody's leaving. They're not getting ready to go to the ring. Not yet. So he comes out of the shower. And he's talking to the guys and everything. And when he goes to pull his pants on, and he put his hand in the pants with his wallet and his money, and the shaving cream just come out <laughs> everywhere. Everything was covered. Everything was drenched. He had to jump in the shower and get his pants covered. He was mad. He had to wash out his wallet. Oh, Everybody's no. up. And they're not, everybody's trying not to laugh, but he's, oh, he's, he was going to kill me. So, <laughs> Oh, yeah, he, 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 he said he wanted to kill me. So yeah. anyway, he uh, after it was all over, he thought everything had cooled down. He goes and he gets a dip of skull out. And I had used that Edge wintergreen gel, right. shaving cream and that. And we put it in his lip like that. His The shaving cream, the, the Edge mentholated gel oh, started to fuss it up. <laughs> So what he thought it, it just started off as you know a nice kind of oh okay, it ain't over me. yet it, it ain't over it, it, it oh, ain't over but I, uh, I go I go all the way so <laughs> so it's not over yet so he washes his mouth that he goes to put his shirt on when he puts his shirt on he had like one of those little gnome hats that looked like it is a beard Santa Claus beard yeah, like yeah. this down his arm so now he's got to take the third shower for the night right after he wrestled his pants and now after he's put his shirt on he's got to take three showers after his match 
He's cussing, screaming, everything. Then his son only weighed 240 pounds and only had an extra T-shirt. Andrew was like 340 or 320, so he's got to walk out. Like okay. Okay, the story doesn't end there. It gets better. It gets better. So that happened on a Thursday night. I didn't wrestle again until uh, that Sunday. I had a double shot. Asheville in the afternoon in Charlotte at night. So I wrestled my match. And right out of the first match, I get out of the, uh, after the referee raises my hand in the air, uh, Wahoo McDaniels is running, walking to the ring. Now, me and Wahoo have been friends since I was about four years old. I get to that later. I used to give him a ride when I worked for Bill Watts on the ring crew. He'd fly in. So we've been friends. And I'll, I'll tell you a good one. Pulled on him, too. Oh, I took a moment, though. Uh, so anyway, uh, Wahoo comes, and he meets me at the security barrier. You know, the when you get out of the ring, you're not crossing the barrier. So he yeah. meets me at the barrier. And he goes, hey, kid. He goes, when you get your get to the dressing room, he goes, don't put your hat on, my cowboy hat. Right. And I said, why? And he said, Mosca, that SOB filled it up with water. Right. And I said, that's all right. It's a beaver fur hat, chief. It's going to dry out. It's a good hat. You know, I wear a good hat. Hmm. So I go back to the dressing room, grab my hat, dump the water in the sink, don't say nothing about it, start kicking off my boots, getting ready to jump in the shower. I got to hit the road and get to Charlotte. I'm first match in Charlotte that evening. So as I'm getting in the shower, Wahoo goes, hey, kid, is that a beaver fur hat? And I said, yeah, chief. That's the only hat I'll wear, you know, a good beaver fur. And he said, well, I got a hair dryer. And I said, well, you could, we could dry it off. He said, yeah. He grabs my hat, and the only electrical outlet on that wall was right next to Angelo Mosco Sr. And Wahoo plugged it in and stood right over it, blowing the water off my hat on the Mosca. So we get to Charlotte that night, and I work and every we work, work the show, and the show's over, and, and Crockett's leaving, and Mosca tells him, he goes, in the dressing room after the show's over, we're, we're the, and Mosca says, I got two weeks. If that kid's working anywhere, I'm gone. Mosca had given his notice. And he was leaving the territory, but he canceled me out of two weeks worth of bookings. You know, and I needed that money. I was struggling right. to survive. Mm-hmm. And, and I wasn't making it. I was living with my grandparents down in, uh, in Marshville, North Carolina. I'm not far from there right now. Uh, so, oh, this is my new set, the bunkhouse. You that's know. very cool. Anyway. No, I didn't like it. Thank very fitting. Uh, cool. So, uh, anyway, so... Uh, after the matches in Charlotte, Mosca tells Crockett, if that kid's working anywhere that I'm at, I'm out of the territory. I'm leaving then. Hmm. So Crockett gives me two weeks off. Right. One Saturday morning, my grandmother comes in there and she goes, baby, she goes, Wahoo McDaniels is on the phone for you. And I went over there and, and uh, Wahoo said, hey, kid. He said, what you doing? I said, just hanging out. He said, you know, uh, uh, tonight's Mosca's last night in the territory. We're in Richmond. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah. He said, you want to get him, don't you? And I said, yeah, I just don't have the cash to get there. He goes, well, I'm going up by myself. I wouldn't mind taking a rider. 
And I was like, really? Oh, chief, man, really? Thank you. And I said, can I stop at the farm supply first? And he said, yeah. So I got to town and I got me some stuff. I got to brought some stuff. Anyway, so here's where it gets good. We pull up to the matches in Richmond. Now, as you know, I told you I was a mechanic a little bit Mm -hmm. here and there. So in Richmond at the Coliseum, you park underneath the Coliseum in the tunnel, the wrestlers do. And uh, so we park and Wahoo tells me, he says, okay, kid. He goes, let me go see what's up. And I'll come out and tell you. And he comes back out and he goes, okay, you're going to have to work quick. He said, Mosca got himself put on third so he can try to beat the crowd out of here. He's going to try to drive to Toronto tonight. And I was like, he ain't going to make it. (laughs) Not tonight anyway. (laughs) So all who goes back in now, everybody knows me. The security knows I'm one of the wrestlers and everything. You know, anyway. I've got a little hydraulic jack, so I jacked the back end up. I put bricks under both sides of the, the axles on his car. I let the air out of all of his tires to 10 pounds, right. so they're all flat, but they don't look it. Um, I spray-painted his head, headlights black. Uh, I put 75 pounds of horse manure on the front seat of his, in the front seat of his uh, Cadillac leather seats. Now... Wow. You got to understand. Oh, yeah, it was good. I poured oil underneath of the tires when they stand. <laughs> when, because when I when I jacked his car up and put him on blocks, I lowered it low enough to where the tires just barely looked like they were touching the ground. Right. Because he had so much weight, everything he owns is in the trunk of that car. Right. So he had so much weight pushing down on that suspension, it had to look low. Yeah. So that's why I left air out of the tires <laughs> so so this is it he got to be he's leaving the matches early he's getting ready to get get in his car yeah. <laughs> and, and i'm watching now i'm looking over the dash and wahoo's bronco watching and mosca opens his car door now i had noticed because mosca's a big guy big guys uh uh, to keep their hips in line if they've had like hip problems on a new Mosca like my dad had. You sit, you back up to your seat, you sit down, and then you turn both feet at the same time. And that keeps your body in line. And I had watched Mosca, so I knew that's how he did it. So he opened his car up, he backed up, sat right down to that horse manure, and <laughs> went crazy. <laughs> oh, I would say Oh, he come out of that car. He's screaming, fighting air, spitting, cussing. Oh, gosh. It was great. And he's got his towel in his hand. He's he's wiping everything. So he takes his towel and he wipes all of his seat off and everything. Gets it all clean. He sits there and he calms down. We don't want to put that towel in the back seat. So he goes and he opens his trunk. And sure enough, everything that man owns is in the trunk of that car. Throws his towel on top. Oh, gosh. When he threw his towel on top, uh, he closed the trunk, went back in, sat in his car, cranked it up, cranked the engine up. Well, he turns on his headlights. He was parked up against the wall. So when he turned on his headlights and the wall didn't light up, he's like, 
what the heck? You know, I see, I, I see him. The, the taillights go off and on a couple of times. He pushes the button. <laughs> out. So he gets out there and he goes and he looks at his headlights and they're spray painted black. Oh. All he's got is a small plastic ice scraper for your windshield. <laughs> and so he's sitting there, ah, oh, for like a long time trying to scrape. And he's cussing oh. and screaming and building a sweat. Oh, he's looking around because he knows somebody's out there somewhere. So finally he scrapes enough to where he can get a little bit of light and he can get out of there until he can get somewhere and take care of it. Yeah. <laughs> so he gets back in his car, cranks it up, puts it in gear. He puts it in reverse and his tires just start spinning. Oh, no. And he's not going nowhere. Okay. Oh. He, gets, uh, he gets down and he looks. And he, he went from his hands and knees to total explosion at the trunk of his car, screaming. Oh. He, was doing, he was doing a better war dance than Charlie Thunder, Norse, <laughs> my old tag team partner, would oh. talk would totally lose it. Oh, this guy was on the break. So now, okay, he's got a Cadillac. Mm. So where do they keep this tire and the spare, the, the jack and the spare tire? In the bottom of the trunk. Okay. So he's got to take everything he owns out of the trunk of his car and put it <laughs> in the parking lot to where he can get the jack to get out and start jacking his stuff up. Okay, he jacks one side up and he gets the bricks out and he starts to jack the other side up. And when he does, the matches are over. And here <laughs> people, here like thousands of people would come down the tunnel. That's why he tried oh, to no. get out of there. Yeah. Everything this man owns is all Lot. He's got a car on a jack. He's chasing people back with a tire iron. Yeah. That's such a well thought out plan. You know, it's almost as if oh, you knew okay. exactly what was going to happen at each point. <laughs> well, <clears throat> I learned a long time ago if you're going to do something, do something right. <laughs> and don't just have one pop to it, have several false finishes. <laughs> Did he, did, yeah. he know? did he know at that point it was you? or did He, well, he, he, he didn't know it was me yet till Wahoo came out to the car, got in the Bronco with me, and we started to leave. Angie's car still up on one jack. And as we pulled off, we stopped. Wahoo would roll down his window, and I said, see you down the road. <laughs> and he stood there with a tire. He walked into uh, an event for Vince four years later, going to be a special commentator. Right. He walked in the dressing room and he saw me and he just stopped. <laughs> and he went, ha, 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 ha. He goes, are we going to be okay, man? I said, that depends on you, Ange. I said, I ain't got no you know, bad feelings. I said, but if you do something, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to retaliate. Yeah. You know, I ain't the biggest and the baddest or nothing like that, but damn it, I've drawn a line in the dirt. I'm only yeah. going to take so much, and you really don't want to get what I'm going to dish out. Uh, yeah. I dropped my brother, Jake the Snake, Eric the Roberts, 
I took him to the airport with stupid written across the forehead. <laughs> I dropped him off. He dropped him off at four thirty at four thirty in the morning for a six thirty flight. Yeah. <laughs> I you know, growing up, I mean he was one of those those characters that really you, you loved or you feared. So I would not have ever considered anyone would have the guts to do that. But Oh yeah, I got the guts. <laughs> You know, I've done a lot of things. Well, we've done a lot of things to each other, you know, pulled yeah. ribs on each other. But it was all in good fun and, and yeah. stuff like that. But, oh, yeah, I, we, we, you know, we spent a lifetime. You know, we're not close or nothing like that. But when we do see each other, we acknowledge each other, you know. Yeah. We have respect for each other. I mean, the guy's the greatest, one of the greatest in the business, you know. Yeah. And, um you know, I, like he's been beating his addiction. Well, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, gosh, I'm, I'm happy for him, and I, oh, I'm so, you know, uh, but I'm beating mine too. You know, it's yeah. kind of, you know, you're not in this battle, or we weren't in this battle alone. It was just different substances that we were abused to, so we're we're on the same page <laughs> and everything. Uh, and, and I got the the greatest respect in the world for him. Uh, we both lived in very different childhoods. So, um, you know, and, and like that's that dark side of the ring that's getting ready to come out. Um, I felt like they were trying to delve in and uh, I can't testify to what to something if I haven't witnessed it. Sure. So, and, and, and I'm, I'm going to put it like that. I, you know, I've, I have heard that my, both my brother and my sister have accused my father of, you know, molestation or, you know, abuse charges. Yeah. I wasn't abused in, I was, I, I would say I, I, my, the abuses in my life were, uh, uh, you know, I was drinking very early in age, but I was drinking uh, on, on trips, uh, road trips back. So I'd go to sleep in the car. Um, uh, and, it, and it was only wine or something like that, you know, Boone's Farm, Strawberry Hill. My dad was my best friend. Um, I saw him. I've seen him do some some out of this world things. I've, I've, I've watched it just I've, I've seen him crush a 55 still gallon drum in his bear hug. I've seen him pick up a car. Uh, and with a brick wall in a car, only one person could get in. A tornado had come through. There were two girls underneath. My dad was the one that picked the car in the, in the brick wall off of them, wow. and we were able to pull the girls out. That was in 1978. A tornado hit my house. Wow. Um, so, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of incredible things. I think this dark side of the, the ring is going to, I don't know what kind of light they're trying to paint or anything else like that. I, uh, to me, growing up, my dad was my Superman. Um, but, you know, hey, everybody makes mistakes. And the most important thing, and, and, and you know, and I gave my testimony of the, of the church the other night down the road that wanted wanted me to talk. So, well, you only got 45 minutes. And I was like, man, I can't tell you everything in 45 minutes. The first time I gave my testimony was two and a half hours long. And then the people left there and went to the gymnasium because we were doing coffee and you, a meet and greet. And they listened yeah. to me for another two hours there. You know, um, my story isn't just about wrestling. My story is no. about life. My story. You know, it, it's about our creator. I mean, we've got to have faith. We've got to seek. 
you know, you got to look into the word. You got to find yourself. You know what makes a great wrestler? Passion for the business. You know, you know what makes a great anything? Passion for that anything. If let's let's say Chris, uh, I, okay, I see some guitars on your wall. Yes. Can you play a guitar? Is that just for looks? I, I, no, I mean, I, I, I would say I can play. I don't know what other people say, but yeah, I'm okay. more, of a, more of a bedroom sort of, you know, musician. So, do you have a passion for it? I do. Do you, I, it? Do you just play it, or do you really play? It? <laughs> it's, it's not. It's, it depends what I'm playing, I suppose. But I, I do it more as you know. I don't do it as regularly as I used to, but it, it helps me. Yeah, it calms me. It's almost like therapy at times. If I've had a tough day, I sit down and I do it. So, but do you have a passion for it? Is that where you live? Yeah. So when you have that passion, that comes through to other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's why people go, "Oh, well, that guy's real, and that guy's fake." That no, that guy's got passion, and that guy don't know how to work. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, couldn't couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah. I, I was going to say because you, you and Jake have, like, like you mentioned, you had your own demons, but you asked a couple of these success stories. You know, you've really turned it around. There are countless others who, who haven't, unfortunately. You know, they've succumbed to certain things within the industry, whether caused by it or not, or whatever. What, you know, what, I, I, what, well, um, the other day I was feeling so guilty, you know, uh, because I'm still here. You know, I should have died many times over. I woke up in the hospital. They're getting ready to stick an IV in my arm. The guy, the doctor said, oh, he said, sir, he said, you should be dead. Your blood alcohol content is 0.417. Your blood pressure is 266 over 160. He goes, you're drunk enough for five people to go to jail. And I looked at him and said, I'm going to go have a cigarette and then I'm going to come back and y'all can start to stick that stuff in me, you know? But I, I should have been dead that time. Yeah. Um, oh, I'm here to help people. Yeah. You know, I, I've been through a lot. I, I'm, I'm here to help folks. Uh, if you can learn from my experiences, I want you to. Well, I forgot your question now. <laughs> I, I didn't have one, really. I mean, I was just going to say, what is what, what do you feel that you may have or what your secret has been that others haven't, that, that hasn't helped them? How have you made it out sort of the other side and turned it around? I drew a line in the, okay, when I was at my worst, I drew a line in the dirt and I said, I'm not going to be pushed back on January the 12th, 2010. Well, let me tell you, the last time I, I was arrested, I've got 12 years without a drink now. Wow. The, uh, on August 28, 2009, I got pulled over for an improper lane change. Okay. Um, whenever they let the, the officer smelled a drink, I'd had one drink. He smelled the alcohol on me. Um, he would arrested me for improper lane change. I bonded out. I knew I had a problem. So I checked into a three year long, re, I mean, a two year long rehab uh, facility. I was there three months to the day. And I went in and uh, uh, had to go go to the courthouse to pay a ticket for an improper lane change. They threw that charge out and hit me with a fourth offense DWI. And I told the DA I've never had a third offense DWI. You know, and you're Mm -hmm. skipping to the fourth. 
He said, if I have to redo the paperwork and change it to a third offense, he said, I'm also going to hit you with the Habitual Offender Act, which will put you down in prison for the rest of your life. Wow. Okay. So he said, if you'll sign off on this paper, I'll give you 10 years. You'll do five of it in prison, you know, and then five of it on parole. Right. So then they went and they locked me up on murderer's row, the worst row you could, because they viewed me as a security threat because I'm a professional athlete and I'm a lethal weapon. Okay. So I'm in the, with the worst of the worst of the worst. And after two days, I couldn't stand it. Right. You know, they're, they're talking 30 years about trying to make this right. My, my life is gone. I'm not going to live like this. I took my bed sheet. I took a razor blade and a uh, broken razor and I slit the bed sheet up and I braided it together. Now I tie knots for offshore cause I was an offshore worker and a bunch of other stuff. Right. So I knew how to tie a knot. Hmm. So I got up on the top bunk, which is five feet and five feet four in the air. Hmm. I got up on the top bunk, I got the sheet, I wrapped them through the bars around and around and around. I'd made two nooses. I put both nooses around my neck. I had them tight. I had them to where they would jerk. My body would fall. It would jerk and my feet wouldn't hit, but when my neck would break. Right. And I was up on the top and I was getting ready to jump as hard as I could. And I said, God, only you can stop this. And I jumped and I hit the ground with both. Both feet so hard broke both nooses. They didn't tear. They didn't rip. They didn't fail. They broke. They, wow. they just broke. And I, I couldn't walk almost for three weeks. I, I, the soles of my feet were so bruised. I'm a guy that jumps from the inside of the ring over the top rope and landed on a yeah. concrete floor for years and years and years. Yeah. You know, and here at five foot, you know, and I can't walk. I think, you know, well, the master was there that night. He said it wasn't your time to go again. Wow. I got down on my knees that night and I, and I prayed to him and I told him I wouldn't try to hurt myself anymore. That I'd do whatever, whatever I could to try to make myself better every day. I may not be the greatest, you know, that I, but I'm going to be as good as I can today and I'm going to try my best to be even better tomorrow. You know, make somebody else smile, make somebody else's Absolutely. day. So five days later, I'm there and they came, you know, and, and I'm in maximum security. So they've got, I've got to back up to the bars. They've got to shackle me and chain me up and everything. They chain me up and they take me to the chaplain. And the chaplain looked at me and said, your mom died. You can use the phone. And I used the phone to call my sister, Rock and Robin. She wrestled too. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, I called her and uh, we made arrangements uh, for me to be at the funeral. She got a deputy to come pick me up. I made it to my mom's funeral in chains, you know, and in orange, but I made it. Yeah. You know, and that was important. I, I wasn't able to make my father's funeral because it was in a different state. Well, the day that the chaplain told me my mom had died and I could use the phone, I, I went back to my cell. Now, I hadn't drank in. The last drink I took was on August 28th. So the first day I didn't drink was August the 29th already, the, you know, the two yeah. of uh, 2009. On uh, 
on that day when on, on the 17th when my mom passed uh i dropped to my knees in the cell that day and i promised uh, god i promised my mom's spirit and for my children that i wouldn't drink you know again and i drew that line in the dirt and i stand on it now the want and the urge that wasn't taken for me from me overnight or anything like that but people can drink around me it doesn't bother me it doesn't threaten my sobriety because to me what i stand for you know is a lot more important than the bad decision and lord knows I, I, I've made a lot of bad decisions. <laughs> Help me all. Yeah. i tell you what, though. I've, I've, had, people, I've had promoters make bad decisions, too. Though, you know. <laughs> I think my, my yeah. dad, my, I, do you know, hey, uh, okay, Chris, do you know, or does, I, I don't know if any of the wrestling world knows this, but uh, Action Jackson, Killer Tim Brooks, Charlie Thunderblood Norris and myself went over on a tour of Port Moresby, Papua New Guinea. Right. Have you ever heard of that place? Yep. Okay. Right. It's, uh, it's like, what, 90 miles from Cairns, Australia. Well, anyway, I was almost eaten by cannibals twice. I was hoping you we would get to talk about this. I've heard, I've heard of this. I haven't heard the story, so... Go ahead. Uh, Go ahead. Okay. Oh, so <laughs> we get the Papua New Guinea. Now, the first night is this, this big party. You know, we're all there. So we stop at the radio station. We do the stuff on the radio. Eric throwing us a big party that night. Well, the next morning, we've got this autograph signing. Yes. And uh, it's at, at the sports stadium. So and, and boy, I've been drinking the night before. I've got, yeah, oh, I'm glad I don't do that no more. Uh, but anyway, they had me set up in a little ring, like eight by eight foot ring, you know, for me to sign autographs when people walk by. Well, I'd been in there for about an hour and a half, and I, I needed to go take a break and get something to drink. Well, earlier that morning, I'd gone down to breakfast. And uh, Larry O'Day told me, he said, hey, mate, he goes, Sammy, he says, this is such and such. He's uh, head of the education. He's from Sydney, Australia, blah, blah, blah. We're here to try to teach the natives. And I'm like, natives? You know? <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not thinking nothing above it. You know? Dude, they took us to the biggest Tarzan movie I have ever seen. <laughs> Okay, I signed autographs. These people are covered. I got bones uh, through their noses, vertebrae in their ear. Yeah, but I, I'm smoking a cigarette, and here comes a guy walking down the street in a Tarzan loincloth. He's got a big grass knife. He's carrying a spear. He's got a bow and arrow on his shoulders. Got a bone in his nose, bones in his nipples, and he's walking. He's about five foot two or five foot three, walking right up to me. And I'm expecting I want to hear, "What do you something like that?" You know? Yeah. And he walks up to me. He goes, "Pardon me, mate. Can I buy a smoke?" <laughs> I'm like, "Wow, you talk better English than I do." I gave him a cigarette. I lit a cigarette. I watch him walk up. I turn back around this way, and here comes a woman walking down the street, and she's got a serape or a little waist skirt wrapped around, and she's nursing a baby on one breast, 
and a piglet on the other. And I was like, oh my God. So I go sign autographs and I'm sitting here and I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking we're in, in a Tarzan movie there, you know, <laughs> we're walking around like this yeah. and this is, so, okay. Uh, so I, was, I, I go to the restroom, give me something to drink. I drink a Coke as I'm walking back to the little ring, the people pick me up. And they start carrying me and they're tossing me up in the air. Boy, and I'm having a party, you know. I'm, I'm the life of this party. I'm, I'm thinking, oh, they're going to love me. And, you know, they would have loved me probably. <laughs> By the time I got to the front gates of the soccer arena, the Australian army had uh, assembled. Boom, 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 boom. I mean, they hit they hit those front gates running. They had... Uh, they had uh, automatic weapons and shooting rubber bullets, mowing people down. They were in there beating people back with clubs. Rottweilers were snatching people by their head and dragging them off. And I was like, what the heck? They get me and they put me in this army transport and there's a major there. And he goes, good day, mate. He goes, you ever watch Boogs Booney? Bugs Bunny? Yeah. He said, you know the one with the Ethiopian? I was like, yeah. And he said, there was a big black pot in your future, mate. He said, what it is, it's their religion. They were going to take me, eat me, and then my spirit would live through their body, you know, through them. Um, Okay, so when I heard that, it was like, Okay, you know, because he'd seen the Zorro movie where he puts the jar with the eyes in, you know, the brother's yeah. head. Yeah. You know, you can see yeah. through your enemy's eyes. Well, the spirit lives through you. So I'm trying to put it together like that. And then, then two days later, three three days later, me and Charlie had walked from the hotel maybe 70 yards to the store, convenience store, grocery store, for a bottle of water. In the no less than three minutes that we'd been in there, over 3,000 people were outside trying to get at us. The, our yeah. army had to come and get us out again. So I'm in the ring. I got Killer Tim Brooks in a headlock. Right. And the natives bust down 100 yards of wrought iron fencing and stormed the, sta- the stadium. Well, I got this guy. I'm like, here, tag, tag. Stay in there. Stay in there. Tag me. Look at my breath. You're a smaller target than we are. I said, headlock. I let it go and jumped up underneath the ring. I'm hearing gunshots and everything else. My God. Well, so now the promoter, we got to go to the police station. But the natives had, had uh, stormed the police station and, and stolen their typewriter so they couldn't take the police report. I, was, <laughs> I, I don't think I'd ever hear a story like this. Ever. Oh, yeah, yeah. When, when we, oh, the, I go to sit down. Uh, I, okay, the, we're right on the equator. So the temperature is like 110, 115 degrees in dry heat. I'll go out to the swimming pool. I go out to sit on a, a plastic chair, and I wait about 2.30, 2.25, 2.30. And when I sat in the chair, it shattered like glass. Well, I threw my left arm down to catch myself, and when I did, I dislocated it all up in here like this. So I get on the phone. I tell Larry O'Day, I said, I can't work tonight. My left shoulder's dislocated. It's like, mate, you've got to. 
And I was like, I can't. I, my shoulder. And they, they all come looking at me. They take me to their little whatever regional hospital. They can't get it popped in and or anything like that. And they're like, dude, what you saw earlier in all these other places will be much worse. So they filled me up with about 19 cc's of lidocaine in my shoulder and my uh, neck. And I went out there and worked. And then, wow. oh, gosh, you know. No, well, how about, you know, we, we, we got, we got back, we, we got back to Cairns, Australia. What a night just to celebrate, to get back to some sort of normalcy. <laughs> and then we get back to Dallas and go drive back to Whitesboro, Texas. And Charlie and I walked up to my dad and we told him, you're not booking us on any overseas tour. <laughs> <laughs> your booking days for the renegades are done. <laughs> But what, what a story to have with you. I mean, I, you know, I say I don't think anyone else never had anything like that before. I don't, I, yeah, it's funny, you know, and, and people can, there's people that are that were there that can back the story up because, you know, oh, but it was something else. Yeah, it was Absolutely. something else. <laughs> you know, I, I've been so blessed to live so many lifetimes in one. You know, I mean, I've climbed a mountain in Kyoto to Japan to see the Buddhist monastery and go in there. Wow, what a what a what a peaceful place it was, and and stuff like that. And then, then to hear a story that in Kyoto, what had happened, uh, the Black Plague had hit, had hit there in 1850s, <clears throat> and people were dying off just left and right. So they begged the monastery and the monastery, I guess they went into prayer and they came back and they told the people to build these carts that were three stories high and for them to drag the carts through town on fire. And because of their faith, because of their blind faith, they did this. And uh, that's what's credited for running off the Black Plague in the 850s. Okay. You know? So we went uh, but I climbed that monastery, you know, if, if there's a mountain in my way, I'll climb it. If there's a <laughs> I want to get to, I'm going to get there. You know, in scripture, in scripture, in the, in the Bible, it tells us, you know, uh, we can do, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, mm-hmm. I get in the ring. He lets me do what I love doing. Yeah. And, you know, a few years ago, you're, are you familiar with Chris Christopherson, the country music? Yeah, yeah. You know, and there's all the music. I rolled out of the ring in uh, Vegas. I hadn't been in the ring in seven years. And I rolled out of the ring in Vegas. And he stood up. He was sitting on the front row. And he got right up in my face. And he stuck, my, stuck his finger in my face. He said, you're the real shit, man. <laughs> Dude, the guy that wrote the song, me and Bobby McGee, called <laughs> This is the Highway Man. He that that beats any titles. That beats yeah. any. He called me the you, you, you know. So, how, so how if you have a title, if you have a movie poster of your life, that would probably be the quote underneath it. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I guess well that would be one. I mean, I got a lot of, you know. I got one of my mottos that I, I used to, you know, and I and I learned this in high school. It was a poem. And I, and if you live it, 
it's pretty cool. But mm. I play it cool and dig all jive. That's the reason I stay alive. My motto as I live and learn, dig and be dug in return. You know, so I kind of like if you, if you, you know, I've been called like in rehab, in prison, or in prison. I was called the coolest white guy on the planet. <laughs> there you go. Goes a long way. Absolutely. Listen, I there's a couple of things I do want to um, sort of ask you about before we before we wrap it up. I could I could probably sit here for about a week and just listen. Definitely. To you, hey, anytime. To get together. Look, I, I, the doors open, you know, and I appreciate and I do that, what huh? I do. I do what I do to try to help people. And when I talk like this, it's like when I talked to the church the other night. You know, they only gave me forty-five minutes, and I went <laughs> sixty-eight minutes. So, but the people stayed even after because they wanted to keep talking. To them. If they right. keep learning, you know, I'm here to help. You know, yeah. God is my father. The almighty God is my father. You are my, all the rest of the fans, you're my brothers and sisters, hopefully in Christ. If you're not in Christ yet, then maybe I can help get you there. Because if I don't see you here, I want to see you in heaven. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. And if I can help anybody, I want to help. So, but anyway, yeah, go ahead. I but anyway. what, I, 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 I'll flip it around a little bit because, you know, one of, one of the things I want to talk about carries on quite nicely from that is, it's what you're doing now because you're doing some amazing things, you know, helping people, you know, just, just talk about the kind of things that you're doing and, and how you're doing it and, and why, and, you know, sort of what, what is, what does Sam Houston's life look like right now? Well, right now, okay. I, I've been, uh, I've been blessed to have, uh, if check this out, you know, the Messiah was a carpenter and I've been blessed to have uh, carpentry skills as well. Mm -hmm. And I've been helping people out through the churches uh, um, with help, helping with ramps and, and making homes, going from handicapped or for, you know, to make them handy capable for people. Um, I met a, oh gosh, there's so many people that, that, that I want to try to help. Um, but I've been uh, like, I built some ramps the other day for a 75 year old son and his 95 year old mom. They, they, the ramp had to be 32 foot long. So, so the neighbors got together and bought the materials and I went ahead and I got, I got the tools and I'm yeah. doing nice stuff, That's but I've, I've been doing some things to make money and then other things like I'll take my souvenir sales money and stuff like that, and invest that money into helping for the handicap project or for a handicap home uh, on my way to WrestleMania in Texas, the red river breached and, I helped the lady there in Alexandria, Louisiana. Uh, she she lost her legs, at, but she when I first met her, she hadn't lost her legs yet. Mm. Her house was on eleven foot stilts, and uh, the the river had breached the levee, and they were all flooded out. And we had to rescue people on boats and this, that, and the other. Well, I was helping her, and then uh, after they took her legs, her house was on eleven foot stilts. She needed a ramp, you know, so we were trying to build a ramp. We got her a, an elevator system uh, hooked up with, you know, some Beverly Hillbilly stuff, I guess. I mean, I took a load and knock ramp. We had a, a, a truck winch, you know, we hooked up some pulleys. We yeah. built a, a track for it to raise her up and down on chains, made her a, a box to where she could come out her front door onto her, onto the uh loading dock 
uh, palate and it'll lower yourself down, you know? So I've been doing things to try to help people, you know? And I want, I would like people to give, go to YouTube and give my song salvation a, uh, a listen to and, and write back and tell me what you think. You know, it's about the night that I was saved. Uh, and I wrote the first three verses that night, and then I wrote the last verse in prison. I hope that helps a lot of folks. I'm going to we're getting ready to start. And that's the reason we built the bunkhouse <clears throat> here. I'm getting ready to start. I've got a lot of knowledge as far as substance abuse and mm-hmm. everything else. I'm going to start help, you know, sharing with my knowledge. You know, I went through like 11 different rehabs and none of them, all those 28 day rehabs, they're not going to work. You know, if they tell you going in, they're not going to work. You need long term. Uh, 28 days is long enough for a habit to start. I don't think it's long enough for one to stop. But anyway, especially when you know what's on the other side, you know. Um, But going through the nine month prison rehab, I took this one class and it was about the 27 uh, risk uh, uh, risk management or risk factors uh, that come into play, like be it, okay, their behavioral uh, uh, characteristics are mm-hmm. basically what they are. So if you see somebody exhibiting these characteristics, you can pretty much figure out that they're addicted, mm-hmm. but especially if it's more than more than three, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and. So there's 27 of them. Well, this will be a way that I can get with people on here, talk to them, and then they can learn what these are, the definitions, see how they work in their lives, in my life, or whatever. Like, the biggest thing for drinkers, you know, is they feel they have to justify. Well, I've had a hard day, so I'm going to have this beer. I deserve this. No, you don't. You know, you don't deserve the air you breathe. You don't know. You don't de- deserve any of the gifts the king offers. You know, you're not worthy. We're not worthy. You know, no. so let's just get down to brass tacks. Uh, <laughs> no, but uh, go ahead. I was going to say, honesty, the best policy, really, you know, in yeah. all walks of life. So. But, yeah. but, you know, for, but, but if, I, if I give you the 27, then you'll, you'll be able to look inside to yourself. Mm-hmm. And then once you, because you're, you're the one that's got to make the decision if you've got a problem or not. Yeah. Your next door neighbor can't do it. You're not going right. to listen to him. If you, if, even if your next door neighbor's right, when they come at you and tell you with it, you're going to throw blocks and you're going to defend your actions all yeah. the way. You're not going to accept it because in your eyes, you're right. Yeah. You know, you yeah. see no other way. People need to take a step out of themselves and look at the whole situation not as of themselves. Yeah. Really get a good honest overview. So is there is there anywhere online that people after seeing this, you know, want to support what you're doing or, you know, just just sort of see what you're doing? Can they where can they yeah, find you? They can okay, they can find me at Michael Sam Houston on Facebook. Uh, that's my my uh, Facebook page. Sam Houston Fan Nation is the fan page that's being run now. I've got an incredible team, Will Knight, Kimberly Austin, just an incredible team of people. Robin Kurtz behind me. Thank you all. I love you all so much. Um, but they, they, they really picked up the page. Uh, the page is taken off. 
there's a, a YouTube channel. I'm not sure which one. There's two different YouTube channels. So I'm not which, sure uh, which one they're supporting. I think it's called the Sam Houston brand. Okay. Uh, uh, let's see. But the Sam Houston Fan Nation and, and Facebook under Michael Sam Houston right now. Uh, also, gosh, um, if they want to check me out, check out further interviews. Uh, you can check out one from Uplift TV. It was it was a worldwide uh, interview for uh, Lee Benton's television show, Victory Road. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so that came out, I think, in 2015 or so but it's it's kind of a, a a nice interview and stuff of a with an old friend of mine i'd done her show like 22 years earlier so i'm one of only a handful of people that have done her show twice and now i hear she'd like me back for a third time because my story doesn't end. yeah i thought i okay i got to north carolina i'm waiting trying to get back to texas because all my stuff's in texas <laughs> tornado hits my place in Texas. I don't have a place to go home to. <laughs> uh, so life can change just like just that. Like you got to accept it. Yeah. In life, we all got to be able not to just be wrestlers and handle any search, but we also got to be able to be ball players too. We need to field any ball that's hit to us or thrown to us and get it back out there home. You know, that's what yeah. we got to do. If anyone takes any, I mean, from this interview, there's, I think there's plenty already that will inspire anyone. You know, just the stories that you've shared, the things you've gone through, and the fact that you are where you are now in itself, you know, I hope will, will help people, you know, have faith wow. in whatever it is, you know. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And hey, anytime you you, are, you know how to reach us and stuff like that. So anytime Absolutely. you want me on, just give me a holler. I want to thank you, for listening to me for taking there's, your time out. There's uh, one thing. There's one one thing I want to talk about before we go, and it's the one sure. thing I thought I would end up talking about at the beginning. So I need to get it in. So any any listeners now viewers of my show will will know I've I've mentioned a certain um, wrestling event that I that was what pulled me in. I, I like to go back into people's stories to find out what it was that. that that sort of pulls you in. The first ever videotape I was given was Survivor Series 88. So you are now the second guest I've managed to have on my show from that event, who basically your name has been there since the beginning for me. So Uh I know your time with the WWF, you were there for a few years. Um, I think, I don't know, from what I can see, 1988 was, was really where you possibly got the most exposure. You were in the first Royal Rumble, you were at WrestleMania 4, you were at Survivor Series working with people like the Ultimate Warrior and Owen Hart, obviously, as the Blue Blazer. You know, you probably got a oh. bunch of memories from that time. Oh, I do. I do. I got some Jim Elwick <laughs> Ultimate Warrior stories to blow your mind. Any, any, like, have you got a couple that you might be able to sort of inter- interject in and sort of a, the closing, the closing moments? Sure, well, yeah, yeah, let me get the one. Okay. Uh, well, anyway, let's see. Uh, well, when Jim first got got up to uh, uh, work for Vince and stuff, uh, they kept him off of TV. They didn't know how to use him. They would film his matches and they'd take him back to the office. So I was on the road. We were on the road together for about two years, you know. And uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, we were on the road. We were traveling buddies the whole nine yards. 
Yeah, I was going to take him to meet my boot maker because he wanted to get some boots like mine and the whole nine yards. We were friends. So we're in El Paso, and I had to work wrestle Danny Davis that night. And, uh, and they were doing the bunkhouse stampedes all over the place. Right. I was like, what's going on? And Chief J. Strongbow did not like me. So he put my match with Danny Davis on. And then I would walk back from the ring. I didn't have time to put in. I got all the cowboy gear to put on for a bunkhouse match, but I can't do it. I got to turn right back around and go back out in just my trunks and boots. Everybody else is in street clothes, you know, or whatever. So when I get back to the dressing room in El Paso, Jim's sitting there and he starts hosing me down with baby oil. And I said, what are you doing, man? I don't like that stuff, you know? He said, Sam, he said, they're trying to get you. And he said, there's a price on your head. They're, they're, it's, they, they're, they got something going. And I was like, really? And I get out there and it's Axe and Smash and food. Oh, just all these people. And sure, Hillbilly Jim. And they all came after me. Yeah. But he put so much baby oil, I just squirt now. <laughs> so I get back in the dressing room and I'm up in everybody's face. And I'm giving them what, ah, you big 300 pounds. So a few nights later in Wichita Falls, Texas, same thing. And I was on right before Gaze. So I come back from the ring and, and Hellwig's there and he's hosing me down with a baby oil. Well, Fuji was sitting back there and he saw it through a curtain. The hell we get done that. And as soon as that battle roll started, he started, everybody started after me again. And uh, I was shooting through people's arms like, I mean, just, they couldn't get nothing. And I'm laughing and you know, just having a blast. Well, hell, Jim Ultimate Oyer was standing with his back to the ropes. And Mr. Fuji got on his knees behind him. And tied his strings to the top rope. Brilliant. Uh, well, he won the match. But he, ring, he also stayed in the ring until they came to take it down. How did he respond to that? You know, was it was he was he was he one that could sort of laugh at himself and laugh at stuff? Because you hear stories about uh, it, I don't know what's probably after a couple, probably after a couple of joints or something. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. Know. Uh, okay. He was he wasn't real happy, but then again, <laughs> you, you got to put a good one over. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You got to make a memorable one. No, that's brilliant. I'm I'm sure there's many many more to come, and I will definitely definitely have. Yeah. You back Hey, if anybody wants to get WOA, uh, if you'll reach, these are the new uh, Sam Houston uh, American Cowboy posters, and they'll be able to you be able to uh, get them soon through Sam Houston Fan Nation, and any T-shirts or anything like that. And, and the money, what, what I'm using the money for is to to help uh, build ramps or widen doors out for folks or or, or whatever I can do. I, I've got a friend that was diagnosed with. Uh, two kinds of cancer Tuesday. So yesterday I went over there. Or, yeah. Yesterday or Wednesday, I was the night I was going to speak at the church Wednesday night. So Wednesday during the, the day, I spent the day cutting trees back and getting her, her, her place cleaned up for her, just to give her something to look forward to. And then I got her to walk outside the house for the first time in a long time. 
you know, just to be able to walk. You know, she's had a she's had an incredible story too. Five years ago, when I got out of prison, she was five hundred and forty pounds. Wow. She's under two hundred and seventy now. So, uh, and she's dealt with a lot of uh, health issues and stuff like that. Um, but this is just she's just one of the many. And but uh, I was able to help her get out of her house and get down her ramp, motivate her. And uh, that's amazing. Uh, but. I, Continue doing that. You know, it, I, I've gotten to a point in my life, you know, they asked me on that one uh, interview that who do I work for? I work for the almighty Yahweh. Um, he's my boss. He's my master. He's my king. He's my God. Um, and, you know, and the only way through him is through Yeshua, the Messiah. Je some people call him Jesus Christ. That's his Greek name. Uh, his Hebrew name is Yeshua. But I mean, that, that's where I fall under and, and that's who I work for. And here's what's happening with me. I find if, as long as I keep him first in my life, that everything else falls in place, yeah. you know, and I can be there for other people uh, and, and I can be there to help other people and, and to encourage other people. Yeah. Because the best advice anybody ever gave to me was Eddie Guerrero's brother, Hector Guerrero. Hector and I broke it. Or I, I, I broke it. Hector was there. And he said, Sam, don't ever be second best. And I, I, I didn't understand at first. And he stopped. He said, he said, I'm not saying be second, not be second in a race or at a contest. He said, never put forth your second best effort. Always put forth your best effort. And that's what I want to tell people. Put forth your best. Give it everything you got. Life is a gift. We don't know when our number's up. You know, everybody's all freaking out. Oh, COVID could kill me. COVID could kill me. You know what? You could walk outside and get hit by a bus, too. You know? Absolutely. It's the same thing we've been saying for years, even before this. Yeah. yeah. So. You know, it's kind, of like, it's kind of like stupid. Oh, this scares me now. I ain't scared of nothing because I'm saved. And I got him on my side, you know. Um but Eddie said, never be second best. You know, Paul Ellering told me, gave me one of the best compliments. He said, Sam, he said, you always go that one step further, hmm. you know, and, and, still on. and I, I lost that in, in, uh, for a long time. And I didn't find that again until I was in prison, you know, and I wasn't going to be the type to lay around. I wanted to work on myself and be the best I could be. So every every class, everything I could do to 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 give myself knowledge and or uh, make myself better. The ministry, I I've I've been uh, oh gosh, they were making me chaplain a chaplain of the New England Music Hall of Fame. Uh, I, I went through a ministry class. I was approved through Assemblies of God. I've been giving testimonials at churches and, and things like this. I got one, the, the people that I helped the other night, I couldn't believe it. The, the preacher come up to me and he said, he said, Sam, he said, we've more than doubled our highest ever Wednesday night of attendance at wow. church. You know, so and I, people want to hear yeah. You know, I got a story to tell, and I'll be more than happy to sit down and tell it with you. I can't wait till the book comes out. Y'all gonna love that. <laughs> Absolutely. I was gonna say, you know, is is something like that in the works? Because it sounds like this yes. needs to be put down. Uh, there's uh, there's oh, okay. So other companies 
uh, come up to me and they want to do, oh, we want to do a documentary on your life. Oh, we want to do a, uh, a television series. Oh, we want to do a docu-series. We want to follow you with a camera, this, that, and the other. I'm going, okay, well, you know, bring, you know, bring, let's do something. And then, you know, and then when you confront them with, hey, I'm ready to go, they're like, oh, well, we got to do this or we got to do that first. Well, I'm not the time. I'm not going to be the one waiting around anymore. I've got the things. I've got the equipment now to be able to do my own thing. And if I if I have to reach out on my own person to person, door to door or however, I will, you know, um, my God gave me a soapbox to stand on. Some people listen to me. I'm a legend in some circles. I'm a superstar to some folks. If they'll take the time and they'll listen, maybe I could help, them. you know, Fantastic. And that's why he gave it to me. You know, I, I'm doing what I need to be doing. And, and you're, you're able to come on, you know, like, it's been an absolute honor to have you on there talking about it. You know, it really, really is. You are a legend in more in, in more walks of life than I, I knew. Really, yeah. You know, it's, no, you're uh, doing incredible things. Oh, uh, well, okay. The next time we talk, Get me to talk to you about some of the offshore stories. Okay, cool. I'll look forward to offshore. That. I was I was a scaffold build. I haven't had a Snickers bar since 2012. Okay. And the because the reason I have it because I was building I was building scaffolds offshores off the side of oil platforms and stuff. Yeah. And I was tearing one down, and it was just after nine o'clock break. And I had had two Snickers bars because I, at the time I was working in, I was out there because of work release, prison work release. Yeah. So I got those two Snickers bars and I ate them up and I, I'm tearing the scaffold down. And my buddy says, Hey, Sam, look over that board and just look down in the water when you take that next board off. And I look and there were six sharks and they were circling underneath of me. And the only thing that I could think about was it was a TV commercial where those two stupid sharks are sitting there. Oh, Steve was good. He just had a Snickers bar. <laughs> so since that, since working over sharks and stuff like that offshore, yeah, I haven't had a Snickers bar. But I, I, I've, I, I pulled through. I, I, uh, I saved a lot of lives out there, wow. and I, I was glad to have that opportunity. I was glad to be the. I'm glad to be the person that he chose to be there at the time because he, he chose, you know, I handled the situation. I took care of things that needed to be done. But I'm like, we we'll go. get to all that. Well, absolutely. I'm really looking forward to that. Listen, thank you again so much, Sam. Thank this you very amazing. much, y'all. All right. God and bless y'all. And you. And you. I'll speak to you again soon. Thank you for listening to a Nerd to Know Media production.